You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 19th. I'm Darian Conrad from Drake University. Here's our first story. Avenue Scholars, Southwest Iowa, getting ready for summer learning. There is an image attached of two women holding a large yellow check for $10,000 to Avenue Scholars, Iowa. The caption reads, The Pella Roll Screen Foundation recently gave a grant for $10,000 to Avenue Scholars, Southwest Iowa. Nearly 250 students will learn about careers. This summer marks a significant milestone for Avenue Scholars Southwest Iowa as they gear up for their fifth annual Summer Career Exploration Program. From humble beginnings with 19 participants in 2020, the program has grown exponentially with nearly 250 students to set to embark on a transform- transformative journey. Excuse me. According to a story by Avenue Scholars Southwest Iowa provided to the nonpareil, offering a comprehensive array of career exploration avenues, including academics, boot camps, and paid internships, Avenue Scholars Southwest Iowa provides high school students with invaluable insights into various industries. The heart of the program lies in its career academies where participants dive deep into specific career areas such as automotive and diesel mechanics, welding, culinary arts, healthcare, and information technology. Complementing these academies are month-long career exploration boot camps designed to immerse students in hands-on experiences that equip them with the knowledge, skills, and inspiration necessary for successful careers in these vital industries. A recent $10,000 grant from the Pella Roll Screen Foundation underscores the support of local businesses as they invest in the future workforce of Southwest Iowa. Kara Cool Treed, Executive Director of Avenue Scholars SWI, said the grant provides a validation that our efforts are critical to the workforce needs throughout our region. Investing in Avenue Scholars SWI not only funds the educational development of youth, but promotes economic and workforce growth, stability, and sustainability. The organization contributes to building a skilled workforce to drive economic prosperity and ensure the long-term vitality of the region's industries. Bailey McQueen-Jones, Director of Strategic Initiatives for Avenue Scholars SWI, leads the business and workforce partnerships effort. She said partnerships and businesses with educational entities are fundamental for Avenue Scholars SWI to continue this impact. Our work is designed to create lasting positive change for all those we serve, McQueen Jones said. Avenue Scholars SWI's partnerships with businesses throughout Southwest Iowa play a pivotal role in offering paid internship opportunities. These internships lasting eight to 10 weeks provide students with real-world exposure to practical skills while addressing workforce needs in the region. Throughout robust programming and strong community partnerships, Avenue Scholars SWI is paving the way for 250 students to explore avenues to success that they might not have otherwise had access to. Everyone deserves someone to care about them, to invest in them, to listen, to guide, to walk alongside with them, Cooltreed said. Avenue Scholars SWI is providing that and more for young people throughout Southwest Iowa.
Moving on to our next story, deadline today to request Democratic caucus cards by Tom Barton. More than 17,500 Iowa Democrats had requested mail-in caucus cards by Friday morning to participate in the party's 2024 presidential nominating contest. In 2012, the last time a Democratic incumbent was on the ballot was when the then-President Barack Obama ran for re-election. About 15,000 Democrats voted at their caucus sites, the Iowa Democratic Party said in a news release. The number, though it is a fraction, less than 3%, of the nearly 658,000 registered Democratic voters in the state. In comparison, more than 110,000 Iowa Republicans cast votes January 15th in the first in the nation 2024 Iowa Republican Presidential Precinct Caucuses, or 15% of the more than 750,000 registered Republicans voters in that state, excuse me. Of the 17,510 requests for mail-in Democrat preference cards, more than 16,000 had been mailed to households and more than 6,000 cards have been returned, according to the Iowa Democratic Party. The deadline to submit a request for the 2024 presidential preference card is 11.59 p.m. on Monday. Democrats can request a card through at iowademocrats.org slash caucus. They have until March 5th to return their preference card and it must be postmarked by then to be accepted. There is an image attached with the caption, a small turnout of about 50 people attended this year's Pottawatomie County Democratic Caucus at College View Elementary School on Monday, January 15th. And the image is of a small group of people in the elementary school's gyms, sitting in chairs, filling out their cards. Continuing, party officials strongly encouraged cards to be returned through the mail and not dropped off at the Iowa Democratic Party headquarters or local county party offices. New batches of preference cards are mailed out every Monday and arrive within 24 hours. The Iowa Democratic Party has a team of staff providing assistance and answering questions about the new mail-in process. Those, excuse me, with last-minute questions can call 515-216-3893. A party spokesperson said, a party, excuse me, a party spokesperson said return preference cards are stored in a secure location and will begin being tab, being tabulating around March 1st. Results will be a mark announced March 5th, Super Tuesday, when more than half a dozen other states will hold presidential primaries. Details when results will be made available will be announced later, party officials said. The party's new cards will include the name of incumbent President Joe Biden and two long-shot challengers, U.S. Rep. Dean Phillips of Minnesota and author Marianne Williamson, who last week suspended her campaign along with an option to remain uncommitted. While it's clear that President Biden will be our nominee, it's important Iowa Democrats participate in our mail-in caucus so that we can set ourselves up for success in 2028 and beyond, Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart said in a statement. National Democrats last year reshaped their presidential nominating calendar, booting Iowa from being the first in the nation and removing Iowa from the group of early states altogether. 
The decision followed a chaotic 2020 caucus night for Iowa Democrats when a smartphone app meant to make reporting results easier failed. As a result, the official Democratic caucus results were not reported for several weeks. State party leaders have been critical of the Democratic National Committee's involvement in delaying development of the app and then demanding additional technology that failed on caucus night. The debacle compounded existing concerns about Iowa's lack of racial diversity and barriers to participation. The Iowa Democratic put the mail-in proposal to make the caucuses more accessible, which was one of the main criticisms. Following the 2020 presidential election, many national party leaders expressed a preference for primary elections over party-run caucuses. Republicans have roundly criticized the decision, saying Democrats have turned their back on Iowa and rural America. National Democratic Party leaders have said that they would revisit the presidential nominating calendar for 2028. All right, moving on. Bob Marley, One Love Tops Box Office by Jake Coyle from the Associated Press, New York, Paramount Pictures' Bob Marley biopic, Bob Marley, One Love, outperformed expectations to debut at number one at the box office with a, a $27.7 million opening weekend, while Sony's Madame Webb flopped with one of the lowest debuts for a movie centered on a Marvel character. Both films launched in theaters on Tuesday to rope in Valentine's Day moviegoers, but on a weekend that was once expected to go to... Madam Webb, One Love emerged as the much-preferred option in theaters, despite largely poor reviews. Instead, One Love, starring Kingsley Ben-Adir and produced with the involvement of the Marley estate, performed roughly on par with previous hit musical biopics like Rocketman and Elvis. Paramount is forecasting that One Love will gross $51 million over its first six days, including estimates for President's Day on Monday. It added $29 million from 47 international territories. Chris Aronson, distribution chief for Paramount, noted that pre-release projections forecast a six-day total closer to $30 million for One Love. But movie, moviegoers from a ri- wide range excuse me, turned out for the first big-screen biopic of the Rastafarian legend. It was across all generations. It wasn't just a movie for older audience that grew up with Bob Marley's music, said Aronson. Our highest quadrant was 18 to 24. A third of the audience was under 25. That, to me, speaks volumes. Produced for about 70 million, One Love, directed by Reynaldo Marcus Green, chronicles Marley during the making of the 1977 album Exodus, while leading up to a pivotal concert for his native Jamaica. Among the movie's producers are Marley's children, Ziggy and Sadella, and his wife, Rita. Ziggy Marley, in a statement Sunday, said, We thank the people for embracing this film and doing, and so doing helping to highlight the message of one love. Through critics ding the, though critics ding the film, 43% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes for relying on biopic conventions, audiences gave it a much higher grade, with an A on CinemaScore. That kind of audience response plus the strong opening should bode well for the film's run. Madame Webb, however, was dead on arrival. Over six days, Sony is estimating a 15.2 million weekend and a six-day 
25.8 million haul. Audiences, a C-plus cinema score, argued with critics 13% fresh. Such launches were once unfathomable for standalone superhero films, but the film, an extension of Sony's universe on Spider-Man films, struggled to shed the bad buzz surrounding the 80 million project. In it, Dakota Johnson stars as a New York paramedic with clairvoyant powers. The entire superhero genre has had a really rough go of it over the past year, said Paul DeGardabian, senior media analyst for Data Film Comscore. Certain things are no longer a sure bet, except maybe now. The musical biopic has become the go-to genre. It just shows how taste can change. Sony Spider-Man spinoffs have been mostly hit and miss. Its two Venom films have together surpassed 1.3 billion worldwide, but 2022's poorly received Morbius collected just 167.4 million globally. Madame Webb still couldn't come close to the 39 million domestic opening weekend for Morbius. In 61 overseas markets, Madame Webb added 25.7 million. The better news for Sony Spider-Verse came Saturday night at the 51st Annie Awards where Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse won Best Feature and collected seven prizes in total. Across the Spider-Verse is nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards, and the Annie Awards can often be a good predictor of the winner. The 2024 box office has gotten off to a sobering start for Hollywood, and the disappointing result for Madame Webb won't help. Moviegoers has slowed to a crawl in recent weeks while 2023 strikes have impacted this year's release schedules. Even with the strong One Love opening, ticket sales were down 15% on the weekend compared to 2023, according to Comscore. Expectations are high for Dune Part 2 until opening March 1st. Until then, Bob Marley One Love will be jamming. Moving on to our next story, Smoking Drugs May Raise Overdose Risk by Mike Stobby from Associated Press. New York, smoking has surpassed injecting as the most common way of taking drugs in U.S. overdose deaths, a new government study suggests. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention called its study the, la- the largest to look at how Americans took the drugs that killed them. CDC officials decided to study the topic after seeing reports from California suggesting that smoking fentanyl was becoming more common than injecting it. Potent, illicit versions of the painkiller are involved in more U.S. overdose deaths than any other drug. Some early research has suggested that smoking fentanyl is somewhat less deadly than injecting it, and any reduction in in injection-related overdose deaths and is a positive, said the study's lead author, Lauren Tans. But both injection and smoking carry a substantial overdose risk, and it's not clear if a shift toward smoking fentanyl reduces U.S. overdose deaths, said Tans, a CDC scientist who studies overdoses. Illicit fentanyl is an infamously powerful drug that, in powder form, increasingly has been cut into heroin or other drugs. In recent years, it's been a primary driver of the U.S. overdose epidemic. 
Drug overdose deaths in the U.S. went up slightly in 2022 after two big leaps during the pandemic, and provisional data for the first nine months of 2023 suggest it inched up last year. For years, fentanyl has mainly been injected, but drug users have increasingly smoked it. People put the powder on tin foil or in a glass pipe, heat it from below, and inhale the vapor, explained Alex Kral, an RTI international researcher who studies drug users in San Francisco. Smoked fentanyl is not a concentrated as fentanyl in a syringe, but some drug takers see upsides to smoking, Kral said. Among them, people who inject often deal with pus-filled abscesses on their skin and risk infections with hepatitis and other diseases. One person showed me his arm and it said, hey, look at my arm. It looks beautiful. I can now wear t-shirts and I can get a job because I don't have these track marks, Kral said. CDC investigators studied the trend by using a national database built from death certificates, toxicology reports, and reports from coroners and medical examiners. They were able to get suitable data from the District of Columbia in 27 states for the years 2020 to 2022. From those places, they got information on how drugs were taken in about 71,000 of the more than 311,000 total U.S. overdose deaths over those three years, or about 23%. The researchers found that between early 2020 and late 2022, the percentage of overdose deaths with the evidence of smoking rose 74%, while the percentage of deaths with evidence of injection fell 29%. The number and percentage of deaths with evidence of snorting also increased, though not as dramatically as smoking-related deaths, the study found. It's complicated to map out exact percentages of deaths that occurred after smoking, injecting, snorting, or swallowing drugs, experts say. In some cases, a person may have used multiple drugs taken different ways. In other cases, no drug-taking method was identified. The study released Thursday found that in late 2022 of the deaths for which a method was identified, 23% of the deaths occurred after smoking, 16 after injections, 16 after snorting, and 14.5% after swallowing. Tan says she feels the data is nationally representative. Data came from states showing every region of the country and all showed increases in smoking and decreases in injecting. Smoking was the most common route in the West and Midwest and roughly tied in injecting with the Northeast and South, the report says. Moving on to nation and world. In the Middle East, Israel threatens Rafah. This is a story by Wafa Sharufa, Karim Chayab, and Melanie Lidman from Associated Press. Netanyahu dismisses calls to halt offensive vows to finish job. Rafa Gaza Strip, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday, brushed off growing calls to halt the military offensive in Gaza, vowing to finish the job as a member of his war cabinet threatened to invade the southern city of Rafa if not remaining Israeli hostages are not freed by the upcoming Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Israel's government has not publicly discussed a timeline for a ground offensive on Rafah, where the where more than half of the enclave's 2.3 million Palestinians have sought refuge. 
Retired General Benny Gantz, part of Netanyahu's three-member war cabinet, represents an influential voice, but not the final word on what might lie ahead. If by Ramadan our hostages are not home, the fighting will continue to the Rafah area, Gantz told a conference of Jewish American leaders. Ramadan, expected to begin on March 10th, is historically a tense time in the region. As ceasefire negotiations struggle after signs of progress in recent weeks, Netanyahu has called demands by Gaza's ruling Hamas militant group delusional. The United States, Israel's top ally, says it hopes to broker a ceasefire and hostage release agreement and envisions a wider resolution of the war sparked by Hamas's deadly October 7th attack in southern Israel. The U.S. also says it will veto another draft U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire, with its U.N. ambassador warning against measures that could jeopardize the opportunity for an enduring resolution of hostilities. But Netanyahu opposes Palestinian statehood, where the U.S. calls a key element in a broader vision for normalization of the relations between Israel and regional heavyweight Saudi Arabia. His cabinet adopted a declaration Sunday saying Israel categorically rejects international edicts on a permanent arrangement with the Palestinians and opposes any unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. The international community overwhelmingly supports an independent Palestinian state as part of a future peace agreement. Netanyahu's government is filled with hardliners who oppose Palestinian independence. Netanyahu wants Israel to achieve total victory over Hamas. In response to an international concern over a Rafah offensive, he says that Palestinian civilians will be evacuated. Where they will go in largely devastated Gaza is not clear. The suggested timing for the offensive came as the World Health Organization chief said southern Gaza's main medical center, Nasser Hospital, is not not functional anymore. Israeli strikes across Gaza continued killing at least 18 people overnight into Sunday, according to medics and witnesses. A strike in Rafah killed six people, including a woman and three children, and another killed five in Khan Yunus, the main target for southern Gaza offensive in recent weeks. Associated Press journalists saw the bodies. Moving on to the next next story about the death of Alexei Navalny. Over 300 detained across Russia, hundreds flock to makeshift memorials to honor critic of Putin. This story is by Dasha Litnova from the Associated Press. Over 300 people were detained in Russia while paying tribute to opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died at a remote Arctic penal colony, a prominent rights group supported Sunday. The sudden crash of Navalny, 47, was a crushing blow to many Russians who had pinned their hopes for for the future on President Vladimir Putin's fiercest foe. Navalny remained vocal in his unrelenting criticism of the Kremlin even after surviving a nerve agent poisoning and receiving multiple prison terms. The news reverberated across the globe with many world leaders blaming the death on Putin and his government. In an exchange with reporters shortly after leaving a Saturday church service, President Joe Biden reiterated his stance that Putin was ultimately to blame for Navalny's death. The fact 
of the matter is Putin is responsible. Whether he ordered it, he's responsible for the circumstance, Biden said. It's not a reflection of who he is. It cannot be tolerated. Or it is a reflection of who he is, excuse me. Other politicians took a more cautious stance. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva said on Sunday that he wouldn't jump to conclusions over Navalny's death. If the death is under suspicion, we must first carry out an investigation to find out what the citizen died of, Lula said in a press conference after returning from an African Union summit in Ethiopia on Sunday. Meanwhile, Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalnaya, published a picture of the couple on Instagram Sunday in her first social media post since her husband's death. The caption read simply, I love you. Hundreds of people in dozens of Russian cities streamed to ad hoc memorials and monuments to victims of political repression with flowers and candles on Friday and Saturday to pay tribute to the politician. In 39 cities, police detained 366 people by Sunday evening, according to the OVD Info Rights Group that tracks political arrests and provides legal aid. Earlier in the weekend, the group reported 401 detentions in two days, but later updated the number and said that their count may change both up and down over the next few days as the information is being verified. More than 200 arrests were made in St. Petersburg, Russia's second largest city, the group said. By Sunday evening, court officials in St. Petersburg reported rulings ordering 154 of those detained to serve from 1 to 14 days in jail. Memorial events also took place in cities across the world. In Berlin, members of the Russian activist group Pussy Riot held a demonstration outside the Russian embassy, holding banners that read murderers in English and Russian. Dozens of people in Romania's capital of Bucharest also gathered outside the Russian embassy on Sunday to pay tribute to the position leader. Many lit candles and placed flowers next to a memorial portrait of Navalny, while several people brandished placards that read, you don't win free elections by murdering the opposition. There is an image attached um, of a woman placing flowers at a makeshift grave to Alexei Navalny um, and at the memorial to victims of political repression on Sunday in St. Petersburg. Moving on to the next story, two Minnesota officers, first responder, die in shootout. This is by Steve Karnowski and Heather Hollingsworth for the Associated Press. In Burnsville, Minnesota, a man armed with multiple guns and large amounts of ammunition shot at police officers from both the upper and lower levels of a suburban Minneapolis home on Sunday, killing two officers and a firefighter, authorities said. A third officer was wounded in the shooting in Burnsville. The suspect in the shooting also died, officials said. Minnesota Borough of Criminal Apprehension Superintendent Drew Evans said there was an exchange of gunfire, and authorities were still piecing together details. The firefighter and the paramedic who was killed was providing aid to an injured officer when he was shot, authorities said. The shootings occurred after officers responded to a call involving an armed man who had barricaded himself inside with family, including seven children. Officials said the family was able to leave the home safely. 
Details on how the suspect died were not immediately released. The Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association said negotiations with the suspect went on for four hours before a SWAT team entered the home. Seven children were inside the house, but the city said that the family was able to leave the home safely. City officials identified the slain officers as Paul, Paul Elmstrand and Matthew Rouge, both 27. Adam Finseth, 40, a firefighter and paramedic, also was killed. Another police officer, Sergeant Adam Medlicott, was injured and being treated at a hospital with what are believed to be non-life-threatening injuries, the city said. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 19th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Darian Conrad from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. Moving on to sports, college basketball, OSU stuns number two Purdue in an interim coach's debut. This is from Associated Press. There is an image attached with the caption, Ohio State forward Devin Royal, right? And forward Zed Key celebrate after Ohio State defeated Purdue on Sunday in Columbus, Ohio. In the picture, Devin Royal is on Zed Key's back, giving him a piggyback ride for the celebration. Columbus, Ohio, Ohio State, stunned number two Purdue on Sunday in its interim coach's debut, winning 73-73, excuse me, to 69, a day after the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee picked the Boilermakers as the early favorite to be the number one overall seed during March Madness. Bruce Thornton scored 22 points and Jamison Battle added 19 points to help out, to help out Ohio State. 15 and 11, 5 and 10, Big 10. Pull off the upset in Jake Diebler's first game at the helm. Chris Holtman was fired Wednesday after several disappointing seasons. The beleaguered Buckeyes had lost nine of their last 11 games. Purdue, 23 and 3, 12 and 3, had been favored by 8.5 points, according to the FanDuel Sportsbook. Ohio State fans stormed the court. What a resilient group, said Diebler, who was overcome with his emotion when he greeted his family on the crowded court. We have some great young men in there who came together at a high these last few days in a way that I don't know if any of us fully anticipated that they could get to in a short amount of time. Ohio State played with energy from the start, led 35-30 to 30 at the break, and six minutes into the second half were up by 12. With the Boilermakers closing down the stretch, it seemed like it was only a matter of time until Zach Eady took over the game, but it didn't happen. Lance Jones hit a three-pointer for Purdue to tie the score at 65 with 139 left, but Battle hit a jumper and then, with 34 seconds left, hit a pair of free throws to bump the Ohio State lead 69-65. An easy dunk by Eady reduced the deficit to two within the 16 seconds left. Running out of time, the Boilermakers fouled Thornton, 
who went to the line and made both foul shots. Edie finished with 22 points and 13 rebounds, the 58th career double-double for the Purdue star. But the Boilermakers turned the ball over 14 times, leading to 22 Ohio State points. We just need to take care of the ball, Edie said. We out-rebounded them. We got more possessions that way, but we can't let them get on transition. We have to play the half-court game. It's tough to win the game when a team scores 22 points in transition. Purdue coach Matt Painter was impressed with how the Buckeyes performed after enduring an emotional week that saw the sacking of their much-loved coach. That's what you don't know. Can you get them down and keep them down, and then, like, they go away, which obviously didn't happen. They win the game, he said. So, you know, where's their fight? What's it going to be? I think they answered that. Their fight was great. Moving on to our next story about golf, Matsuyama wins at Riviera with 62. Nine-time champion becomes Asia's most prolific PGA winner. This is by Doug Ferguson from the Associated Press. Los Angeles, the conversation began seven years ago when Japanese star Hideki Matsuyama won his, first, won his fourth PGA Tour title to pass Shigeki Maruyama, his mentor. Maruyama told him that the ultimate mark was nine tour wins, a record for most by an Asian-born player. Matsuyama had little reason to believe that would come Sunday at Riviera. Six shots behind the final round of Genesis Invitational, Matsuyama delivered a record performance, nine under 62, the lowest closing round by a winner at Riviera, to achieve the record that really mattered. He now has nine PGA Tour wins, one better than KJ Choi of South Korea. Reaching nine wins was one of my big goals, passing KJ Choi, Matsuyama said after his three-shot victory. After my eighth win, I've been struggling with my back injury. There were a lot of times where I felt I was never going to win again. I struggled reaching to top ten, but I'm really happy that I was able to win today. This was an exquisite performance, second only to his 61 in the final round of Firestone in 2017 on a day no one else shot lower than 65. Matsuyama was part of a five-way tie for the lead on the back nine until he hit a beautiful fade with a six iron from 187 yards into a breeze on the tough 15th hole that carried the bunker and rolled out to eight inches for a tap-in birdie. Perfect shot, he said. On the par 3 16th, he dangled the club after his tee shot because it was five yards right of where he had been aiming, only to see it roll six inches from the cup for another birdie. He added a third straight birdie with a chip down, the slope on the par 5 17th just over three feet. Matsuyama lightly pumped his fist, a rare show of emotion for him, but when his four-foot par putt with a sharp right-to-left break dropped in for a 62. Doug Toole shot 63 in the final round to win in 1986 the previous record. The only downer for Matsuyama was not being able to pose with Tiger Woods, the tournament host who had a withdrawal on Friday with a bad case of the flu. 
To win in this tournament was one of my goals ever since I became a pro, Matsuyama said. After Tiger became the host, the goal became a lot bigger. A little disappointed that I wasn't able to take a picture with Tiger today. Matsuyama finished at 17 under 267 for a three-shot victory over Will Zalatoris, 69, and Luke List, 68. Patrick Cantlay and Xander Schwafle, best friends in the final group, faded in the middle of the back nine and tied for fourth. Once I saw Hideki finishing at 17 under, it was a bit of deflator. I'm sure for the rest of the field, Schwafle said, but hats off to him. It's incredible. He's done it for a few times now, shooting lights out on a Sunday. It was the third time Matsuyama shot 63 or lower on Sunday to win, but most recently at the Sony Open two years ago. Mariyama sent him a text that day in Hawaii, reminding him of their talk about breaking Choi's record. Matsuyama said, never, said winning never entered his mind when he arrived to the course on Sunday. Cantlay had a two-shot lead and had not taken too many wrong steps, but he was feeling a little ill, and Sunday's round was a struggle. Cantlay hit only four fairways and nine greens. He missed a 12-foot birdie putt on the easy opening par 5 and then didn't have another look at a birdie until the sixth hole. He made a birdie putt from 50 feet on the 18th for a 72. Cantlay, who struggled, who played with Swafle, who struggled just as much. Swafle got back in the mix with a tough birdie on par 4, 10th, and holding a bunker shot for Eagle on par 5, 11th. He bogeyed the next three holes and rallied for the end, at the end for a 70. Liz set the early pace. Zalatoris took the time in the middle of the back nine. At one point, there was a five-way tie for the lead, heading back to the tough stretch on the back nine at Riviera. And then Matsuyama took over with three straight birdies. The second shot on 15th was probably the best shot I ever had, he said through his interpreter. There is an image attached of Matsuyama raising his hat at the Riviera. The caption reads, Hideki Matsuyama of Japan celebrates his win on the 18th green during the final round of the Genesis Invitational on Sunday at Riviera County Club, Country Club, at the Pacific Palisades area of Los Angeles. Moving on to NBA All-Star Weekend, East defeats West 211 to 186 in highest scoring All-Star game from the Associated Press. Indianapolis, the NBA wanted more competition. It got more points instead, more than ever before. And once again, the All-Star game was all offense. The Eastern Conference beat the Western Conference 211 to 186 on Sunday night, with the winners putting up the most points in the game's 73-year history. The previous mark, 196 by the West in 2016. It was a flurry of records. The total points of 397 smashed the record of 374 set in 2017, while the East made 42 three-pointers to break the mark of 35 set by Team LeBron in 2019. The sides combined for 193 points in the first half to break the any-half record of 191 set last year, and the East tied an any-half record by scoring 104 by intermission. 
All-Star MVP Damian Lillard scored 39 points for the East, while Jalen Brown had 36, and Tyrese Halliburton from the hometown Indiana Pacers finished with 32. Perhaps unnoticed, Carl Anthony Towns scored 50 points for the West in just 28 minutes. Shea Gilgis Alexander scored 31. The highlights were from everywhere. Lillard pulled up from half court in the third quarter. Swish, Luka Doncic tried a shot from about 70 feet late in the first half. It hit near the top of the backboard. Towns even threw an alley-oop to Stephen Curry. The Warriors star is much more of a shooter than a dunker, so he simply laid it in instead. Defense was optional, sometimes accidental. Halliburton had five three-pointers in a one-minute, one-minute, 32-second span in the first quarter, helping the East take a 53-47 lead after opening 12 minutes. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and other league executives were seeking a more competitive All-Star game after last season's 184-175 to matchup was widely panned, and television ratings plummeted. Even Hall of Famer Larry Bird, honored Sunday at the NBA Legends Brunch, said was hoping the message from the league resonated and players took the All-Star game a little bit more seriously. I know what this league's all about and I'm very proud of it, Bird said. I'm proud of today's players. I like the game they play. I think it's very important when you have the best players in the world together. You've got to compete and you've got to play hard and you've got to show the fans how good they really are. There is an image attached, and the caption reads, Timberwolves forward Carl Anthony Towns goes up for a dunk during the first half of Sunday's All-Star Game in Indianapolis. Moving on to the NHL, Rangers rally past Islanders at MetLife. From the Associated Press, East Rutherford, New Jersey, Artemi Panarin scarred, scored 10 seconds into overtime, and the New York Rangers rallied from three goals down on Sunday to defeat the rival Islanders 6-5 in a stadium series game at MetLife Stadium. Vincent Trocek had two goals and an assist, and Eric Gustafson and Chris Crater also scored for the Rangers, who won their seventh straight and remained perfect in five outdoor games. Rangers coach Peter LaViolette was behind the bench for his fifth outdoor game, tying Joe Queneville for the most in league history. Brock Nelson had a goal and an assist, and Bo Horvat, Matthew Brazel, Anders Lee, and Alexander Romanov also scored for the Islanders, who fell 0-1-1 in outdoor games, with both losses coming against the Rangers. Ilya Sorokin stopped 32 shots. There is an image attached from the Rangers-Islanders game. The caption reads, The Rangers play the Islanders during the second period of a stadium series game on Sunday in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Moving on from sports, here is today's Today in History. Today's highlight on February 19, 1942, during the World War II, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which paved the way for 
relocation and internment of people of Japanese ancestry, including U.S.-born citizens. On this date, in 1473, astronomer Nicholas Copernicus was born in Torun, Poland. In 1807, former Vice President Aaron Burr, accused of treason, was arrested in the Mississippi Territory in present-day Alabama. In 1878, Thomas Edison received a U.S. patent for an improvement in the phonograph or speaking machines. In 1945, Operation Attachment began during World War II as some 30,000 U.S. Marines began landing on Iwo Jima, where they commenced a successful month-long battle to seize control of the island from Japanese forces. In 1959, an agreement was signed by Britain, Turkey, and Greece granting Cyprus its independence. In 1976, President Gerald R. Ford, calling the issuing of the internment order for people of Japanese ancestry in 1942 a sad day in American history, signed a proclamation formally confirming its termination. In 1985, the British soap opera East Enders debuted on debuted on BBC television. In 1986, the U.S. Senate approved 83 to 11 the Genocide Convention, an international treaty outlawing acts committed with intent to destroy in whole, in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Nearly 37 years after the pact was first submitted for ratification. In 1997, Deng Xiaoping, the last of China's major communist revolutionaries, died at age 92. In 2003, an Iranian military plane carrying 275 members of the elite Revolutionary Guards crashed in southeastern Iran, killing all on board. In 2008, an ailing Fidel Castro resigned the Cuban presidency nearly half, nearly a half century in power. His brother Raul was later named to succeed him. In 2017, three former elite U.S. gymnasts, including 2000 Olympian Jamie Danschner, appeared on CBS's 60 Minutes to say they were sexually abused by Dr. Larry Nasser, a volunteer team physician for USA Gymnastics. Moving on to lifestyles and entertainment, on gardening, Coral Sun offers lovely options. This is by Norman Winter in the Tribune News Service. Superbell's Coral Sun made its debut in 2020 and has been racking up awards from north to south. By that, I mean top performer from Michigan State to Mississippi State, and you can add perfect score at University of Tennessee and directors select at Penn State. Now that I have grown it for a few years, the, gar- the garden guy can give it a holy wow, too. Like most of the Superbells, it can reach 12 inches tall with a spread of 24 inches through. I can give it one exception to that rule. I planted one in spring of 2022, and it was a mega big one one year later. I am clueless as to how it made it a whole year other than its temperature tolerances staying within the threshold. I say that, but I love planting them in October if I can get them. They seem perfect for my Georgia Zone 8 garden. I really believe growers and gardeners alike are missing a real opportunity. 
Superbell's coral sun has proven itself, as most of the rest in the series, at having a natural attraction for bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds. You have to admit there is nothing quite like seeing spice spice bush swallowtails feeding on the coral sun blossoms. Though spring is around 50 days away, I am already sensing a little anxiety in the garden world centered around the orange-flowered supertunia persimmon. The flaming orange and yellow blossoms seem to have taken the garden world by storm. The anxiety, however, is centered on the ability to find them in the marketplace. Enter the Superbell's coral sun, Calabrocia. It looks for all the world to be younger sister, if you will, to supertunia persimmon petunia. Petunias and calabrochas are related, so to be more scientifically correct, they would be sisters. They would not be sisters, but cousins. For the sake of experiment, we were able to get a large bowl with great potting spo- spoil planted with supertunia, persimmon petunia, August lavender heliotrope, supertunia vista snowdrift petunia, whirlwind blue scavla, and the star of this column, the Superbell's Coral Sun Calabrocia. The colors and patterns of Supertunia Persimmon and Superbell's Coral Sun seemed almost identical and were breathtakingly beautiful. As you would expect, the Pertunia Persimmon, the Supertunia Persimmon was larger in both stature and blooms. The Superbell's Coral Sun, however, was no slouch in either attractiveness or the sheer number of blooms. So the point being is, either one will fit your desire for that dazzling show of color. As you probably know, partnerships with blue seem to create those goosebump type feelings and desire to do something similar at your house. I've grown mine with Supertunia Mini Vista Indigo and another combination with Superbena Verbenas. At the, young, at the Young's Plant Farm annual garden tour in Auburn, Alabama, they featured Superbell's Coral Sun Calabrocia in a raised bed with Superbell's Double Calabrocias that seemed to have a light blue flowers. The Coral Sun shocked with almost an uncountable number of flowers. This raised bed soil had the best organic amendments, which you will need, too. Or plant in containers, containers with a high-grade potting soil. You do this, feed a water-soluble fertilizer every two to three weeks, and water is needed, and you'll have the most garnered in the Green Thumb Award. Most of us back in the South will also cut back by a third in August to set up for a great fall bloom. If you're like everyone else and you want the Supertunia persimmon petunia, just remember that you can't find it. Try the award-winning Superbell's Coral Sun Calabrocia. Your designs will be just as riveting. There is an image attached of the beautiful Superbell's Coral Sun Calabrocia, and the flowers have hot pink petals, and the inside is a nice bright yellow, among some purple ones as well. All right, moving on to our last category, careers and advice. Um, This is titled, The Old School Job Search, How to Look for Work Without a Smartphone or Computer. And this is written by Kathleen Furor from the Tribune Content Agency. I recently received an email from a reader wondering how someone without access to a smartphone, computer, and or the internet can successfully launch a, launch a job search. That's what made me wonder if it is really possible to successfully navigate the job market without having all the bells and whistles that so many of us take for granted. 
Not everyone has access to smartphones, computers, or the internet for job searches. This is a surprising but important truth to address in this digital age, says Jeff Maines, founder and CEO of Champion Leadership Group, who says he's encountered diverse diverse job seekers facing unique challenges in his 20 plus years in coaching and leadership development. The good news is that there are ways to navigate the situation. As Sean Monaher, founder of the Content Authority, says, in a world of increasingly reliant on digital tools, it's challenging but not impossible to find a job without them. Develop a strong verbal pitch. Also known as an elevator pitch, this should be something that succinctly highlights your skills and experiences, Manaher stresses. This can be invaluable in face-to-face interactions, which you might encounter more often without digital tools. Leverage your community resources. Maine says this step is paramount. Local libraries often provide free computer access and assistance with job applications. Additionally, tapping into community job fairs, career counseling services, or employment agencies can open doors, he says. These avenues facilitate networking, connecting individuals to opportunities that might not be advertised online. Angela Wang, the owner of We Buy Houses, also is a proponent of taking advantage of resources within the local community. Local job centers often have computers and the internet available for job seekers. You can use these resources to search for jobs, apply for positions, and submit your resume, says Wang, who also recommends visiting staffing agencies to get the job search moving ahead. They can help you find temporary or permanent positions that match your skills and experience and often have access to job opportunities that are not yet publicly posted. Embrace offline strategies. Networking through face-to-face interactions, attending industry-related events, or joining professional associations can create meaningful meaningful connections, Maine's notes. Create hard copies of a well-crafted resume and cover letter. According to Maine's, taking this step and then going straight to prospective employers shows initiative and commitment to seeking out opportunities. Manaher also suggests taking the hand-out-a-hard-resume route. This can be distributed in local businesses, community centers, or even in response to help-wanted signs and shop windows, Manaher says. Volunteer or intern. There are multiple benefits to taking this approach. It gives job seekers experience, helps them build relevant skills, and gives them the chance to make connections in their field of interest, Wang says. This can also help your help you identify potential job opportunities, adds Wang. Remember that while having a smartphone, computer, and internet access can make job searching easier, it is still possible to navigate the job market without these tools. By focusing on your strengths, networking, and utilizing available resources, you can increase your chances of finding a suitable job. There is an image attached of an Adobe stock image of a hard resume on paper. And the caption reads, during your job search, keep hard copies of your resume on you to hand out where you see help wanted signs. 
And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 19th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Darian Conrad from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.